All right, grab your Bibles. Let's go to work. Hopefully you brought a Bible. If not, they'll be up on the screen, but I would encourage you to bring your Bibles. Uh, We're kicking off a series in Revelation. Uh, We kicked it off last week in Cedar Rapids, and for this series, we're trying to to stagger it a week and see how that goes to get some uh, teachers involved more easily. Um, so we're going we're gonna to start this study off. Revelation. Uh, turn to the book, uh, or in the back of the book, if you found maps, you've gone too far. Go left, uh, it is towards the end. But it's going to be best if you see it in front of you. So if you don't bring your Bible to church, I would encourage you to start to do that. Uh, are you guys excited for this study? Just kind of a show, I don't know. You, okay. I don't know. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't know. There's kind of polarizing responses to this book, uh, which I've experienced is either some people are just uh, gun ho about studying revelation and they've done it and you got charts at home and you've read a lot of books and blog posts and everything. And you're just, you're excited and you're ready to go. Other people have kind of like dipped their toe in and be like, that's super confusing. I'll just stay with the gospels or something I can understand. And they're almost a little bit scared of it. Uh, as a church, we're both excited and nervous to start this study. Excited because it's the word of God and it has some amazing things to teach us uh, that we really need to hear. A little nervous because there seems to be a lot of passion around some different interpretation or viewpoints of this letter. So right off the bat, I know this is going to be a series where we get lots of emails. Excited for that? Welcome your emails. Uh, you can send them all to Matthew now. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, but but we're, we're a little nervous because there is a lot of passion and different perspectives when it comes to this this book or this letter. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you up front, there is a diversity or there is diversity of interpretation to some of the passages we'll look at in the study, even among our staff and elder team. And that's okay. Uh, none of those kind of undermine the gospel or even the main point of this book. Uh, and as we teach through this book, we're going to try to be as fair as possible and represent those perspectives uh, the best that we can. Uh, but let me tell you this. Those are not issues to get bent out of shape about. Okay, I just want to tell you that up front. Everybody just take a deep breath. Uh, none of these are issues to get bent out of shape on. But there also seems to be this other group of people that, uh, I don't know if they've read Revelation that much, but you've seen some apocalyptic movies or you read the Left Behind series, uh, and now you watch a lot of news. And you're convinced, like, okay, any politician I don't like, that's the Antichrist, and the locusts are clearly black hop helicopters, like that's what makes sense, and the vaccine is the mark of the beast, and you just know it, right? You're just there. Did it get awkward? We get a little awkward here? We're just going for it, okay? And you're just like waiting to be rescued and your clothes to be dropped in a pile of the floor at the rapture, like that's your escape. You're excited for that. I'm glad you're here. We're going to work through this together. Uh, but I had, I got a friend in college who had a very interesting roommate. Uh, and he heard my buddy coming back to the apartment. Uh, and he was alone. And he wanted to make him think that he missed the rapture. So he took all his clothes off in a pile of the floor and then just jumped in the closet naked. Uh, while my buddy comes into the apartment and sees his clothes on the floor... And like any normal human being doesn't jump to the conclusion that he missed the rapture. He just thinks I live with a slob. Uh, so he didn't like get the reaction he wanted. And now he's like naked in the closet, like awkwardly trying to figure out what's the next move here. Um, but I think this is just kind of a weird thing. Like there's a lot of weird stuff we're going to look into in this study of Revelation. I mean, you got like dragons and swords and war and angels and demons and, the, and, and Christ returning again triumphantly. So there's just some odd stuff. Like just like it's just going to be a, a little bit weird. And this is a 
this is a challenging book. I just want to be up front with that. It's a challenging book. If in your Bible reading plan, you love the Gospels and you love the epistles, but when it comes to like Ezekiel or Zechariah or Daniel, you're kind of like, ah, I'm not sure. You're going to struggle here because this is, uh, this is a New Testament book that has the most Old Testament references of any New Testament book. And it's got a lot of symbols and numbers and visions and metaphors and imagery. And it's particularly hard for us as Westerners because we tend to want to interpret everything literally. Um, That's just kind of the way we're wired in our culture. So when we approach this book with a lot of imagery and visions and metaphors, we've got to ask ourselves, does Jesus literally have a sword coming out of his mouth? Or is that supposed to represent something? Is Satan literally a dragon with six heads? Or is that a symbol for something? Is the mark of the beast literally 666 on your forehand or your hand or your forehead? Or is that telling us something different? And we're going to have to navigate that. And not only do we love to take everything literally, we also as Westerners like everything linear. Um, And that's not uh, the case for a lot of the cultures in the world or the culture writing the book of Revelation. But for us as readers, that's kind of how we approach it. And we like, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. But in the book of Revelation, it uses something called... Recapitulation. So it's when you like say the same thing from a different perspective. And we've seen this Gen- uh, Genesis 1 and 2. It can be frustrating because you read Genesis 1 and you're like, creation of the world. Then you read Genesis 2 and it's like, well, that's another creation of the world. Is this the same world? Are we looking at it? It's a little bit different and, and we're bothered by that. But for Hebrews, it's like, no, it's the same thing. I'm just telling you at another angle. Like we looked at it at this angle. Now I'm going to look at it at this angle and point something out differently. You see that in the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John cover the same stories, but there's like a little bit difference. Like, well, this is because of my perspective and this is from this perspective. So in the book of Revelation, you have like things happening. And you're like, okay, are they happening in sequential order? Like this happened, then this happened, then this happened? Or are we getting to look at the same event from different angles? Because it can seem like... The, the final judgment happens like five or six times in the letter. It's like, is this the same thing happening over and over again? Or is this kind of sequential events? Like, we're going to have to wrestle with that. And there's a lot of challenging passages ahead of us. There's going to be some difficult things that we try to navigate. But I hear, and hear me now, I think the real challenge is that we don't get lost in a few of the challenging passages and miss the main point. Which is not confusing at all. And extremely, extremely important that we have to grasp. So this morning, I just want us to take a look at the first three verses in chapter one. We're just going to look at three verses, and I want to kind of set the stage for our study uh, by asking a question or, or, or trying to answer a question that I think will guide us throughout our study. The question is, why? Why this book? Why this letter? Why this revelation? What's the point? What's the purpose? Because there's a lot of confusing stuff, and we can want to tend to jump to the what. Well, what does this mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And before we try to tackle all those, what's going to be helpful is the why. Why was this written? What's the purpose behind it? Like, if you were going to explore a cave, you know, like, there's a lot of places to get lost in this cave. You can turn off here, you can turn off here, and you can find yourself just lost. You say, well, let's tie a rope around ourselves so we can kind of find our way back. There's a lot of places to get lost in this book. There's a lot of rabbit trails and holes that we can go down. But what's going to anchor us is answering the question, why? Why was it written? What's the point? So we want to try to understand that. You guys ready to go? All right. Revelation chapter 1. Let me read the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ 
which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, we're going to start right off with some of the basics to feel like, okay, well, who wrote this? And the author identifies himself right away as John, not just John, but the John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this was the apostle John, the disciple John, who traveled with Jesus, and he wrote this, uh, this revelation came to him that he's passing on. In fact, he identifies himself again, if you look down at verse 9. Uh, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the difficulty that we find ourselves in and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos was a, a Roman prison island. Think of like Alcatraz, uh, but bigger. And this is where uh, Romans would send prisoners. They had mines you had to work in. Well, John got sent to the island of Patmos. Uh, and history, it's not in scripture, but history suggests, we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of account that would, would say that uh, John was arrested in Ephesus. Uh, doing ministry, where they tried to kill him by boiling him, of, uh, boiling him in a vat of oil. Uh, well, that didn't kill him. Yeah, I know. The face is like, yeah, that's, that's nasty. Um, now, that didn't kill him. We don't know if he was miraculously spared from that execution or if it was just a botched execution. Uh, but either way, he didn't die. Uh, so they sent him to Patmos to live out the rest of his days. So he's writing this letter or receiving this revelation from God, putting it down in a letter to send out to churches, including us, to receive this letter. Um, and the reason he's at Patmos, if you look again at the last part of verse 9 is on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So John's crime is being a Christian. That's his crime. That's why they tried to kill him. Uh, and that's why they sent him to the island of Patmos. Because his, his offense against the Roman government was preaching uh, Jesus Christ. And this is what got him in trouble. Now, he's writing to other Christians. If you look at the verse, first part of verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he's writing to a group of seven churches. It was a letter that was meant to be circulated among a lot of different churches uh, that are in the same area, going through the same thing at this same period of time. And this was kind of the beginning uh, of some heavy persecution if you were a Christian. It was the beginning of some heavy persecution if you were a Christian. Now, for us as Americans, we've kind of grown up uh, in what we've experienced is what a lot of people refer to as a Christian nation. Uh, now, whether that's legitimate following of Jesus Christ or just more culturally, um, that's kind of been what we've known for a long period of time. What sociologists are now talking about is what America will look like as a post-Christian nation. Like, what does that mean? It's like when a, when a culture kind of moves away from some traditional values or morality laid out uh, or guided through religion. Like, okay, what does our culture look like now? And we can be bothered by that, but in Scripture, uh, he's saying, hey, that's, 
That's what most Christians throughout history and throughout the world experience. That's what they know of Christianity. It's just foreign to us. But Peter tells us in in 1 Peter, it's like, think it not strange. Like when you go through various trials, when you're persecuted, don't think it's strange. Like we follow somebody who was publicly executed as a criminal. That's our leader. So he's like, you shouldn't think it's so strange when people don't accept you. In fact, Paul tells clearly in Timothy, it's like, if you want to follow Jesus, plan on being persecuted. Plan on not fitting in. Plan on difficulty. Like you should just count on it. And the Christians in this time were experiencing tremendous amounts of heavy persecution. See, when Christianity first started, Rome really didn't figure it out. Like, what is this? Is this just kind of a, another sect of Judaism? And we know Jewish people and we're just kind of lumping it in there. But the Jewish people weren't liking it. They're complaining about this Jesus Christ who's r- raising up crowds. So it's like, oh, well, let's just easily squash this problem. Let's just kill their leader. And how did that work? Not good. Yeah, it's resurrection. You guys right? Resurrect did not work well. Um, and it, Christianity continued to grow. You see it in the book of Acts. It spreads. And like, okay, what are we going to do about this? How do we squash this? Well, in AD 65, Nero was Caesar and he ramped up public government-sponsored persecution. So if you were a Christian, you could be thrown in prison for being a Christian. Um, you were fed to animals. You were entertainment in the Colosseum to be killed by wild animals. Uh, Nero was famous of kind of having this, this grand courtyard where he would take Christians and tie them to, to post, douse them with oil, and light them on fire to light his courtyard. So that was, that was the gig. This was what Christians in this time period were facing. But then in 70 AD, it got really bad. Uh, there were some people living in Jerusalem that had enough of taxation and imperialism, so they revolted with some short-lived success. Kind of took Jerusalem. Well, Rome sent reinforcements and absolutely destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and massacred a ton of people. Also, in that same year of 70 AD, Paul, Peter, and Timothy are publicly executed. Can you imagine for us if when we turn on the news... Like the leaders, the Christian voices in our country are being gathered and publicly executed. Like the headline is, they caught Tony Evans and John Piper and John MacArthur and all of them are in prison waiting their execution. Like those are the news things that we hear. Like this is what they're hearing. Like, oh, they caught Paul. They caught Peter. They caught Tim. They, they killed them all. Like this is kind of the pressure that they're feeling. Then Domitian becomes Caesar shortly after and he orders emperor worship. Now, emperor worship was already being practiced. Some of you guys are nerding out of this history. Other of you guys are like, yeah, just get on with it, right? So he was going to, uh, he, he commanded emperor worship. Emperor worship was already happening in Rome. Jewish people kind of had an exemption. They weren't expected to do this. But this was making this a, kind of upping the law. It was a target directly at Christians. Because you had to declare Caesar as Lord. And what did Christians say? Jesus is Lord. That was a huge political statement for Christians in the first century. So this law kind of targeted these Christians like, no, you need to swear allegiance to Caesar. You need to recognize him as the divine supreme leader, ruler of your life. Can you imagine like going to school, going to any public event, and before you get going, you would have to, I don't know, pledge allegiance. But not to one nation under God, but one nation under this leader or that leader. You kind of have to recognize that to fit in. So Rome is trying through propaganda, through laws, through persecution, 
to aggressively stomp out Christianity. I mean, think about being a Christian in this context. If my boss found out that I'm a Christian, I'll lose my job. If they want to make an example of me, I may go to jail. Depending on the ruler and the situation, I may be killed. And this is kind of the tension and the reality of their life. I mean, guys, the pressure to quit, to give in, or to compromise is extremely high. If you're a Christian in this context, in this pressure, the social context that you're living in, the the, the pressure to, to quit, to give in, or to compromise is extremely high. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel just a, a pressure to like compromise your beliefs to fit in better? Or just to quit? When being called a Christian is no longer socially normal, but almost derogatory. Oh, you're, you're one of those Christians. Do you feel the pressure just to compromise your beliefs, to give in? And depending on your personality or your age, you may answer that differently. Some of you are like, no, let's fight, right? And your passion may be a little bit more patriotic than actually being faithful to Jesus. What if I ask the young people in the room, does it ever get old going to school where you're pushed a sexual ethic by all of your peers and a lot of your teachers that if you don't embrace, you are an ignorant bigot? And it would be so much easier just to be like, oh, oh yeah, I don't think like that. That's okay. And you just kind of compromise something that's taught in Scripture. And you feel pressure just to, life would be so much easier if I didn't follow Jesus that way. I think I would be so much more accepted and liked if I didn't follow Jesus that way. This is John's audience. A group of people that are under extreme amount of pressure to compromise to give in. And you see it as when we get into their letters, they're going to get called out on this. But this is what they're facing. There's a lot of pressure. So guys, we can't forget as we jump into this book, we can't forget it's a letter. It's a letter to real people going through real tough stuff. It has a specific group of people in mind at a specific time, in a specific context, with specific problems. And this letter had meaning to them. And hear me now. It can't mean something to us it didn't mean to them. So as we try to make sense of weird things, we got to first ask, like, how would they have understood that? Like, it can't mean something to us it didn't mean to them. And it meant something to them. So we kind of got to do the hard textual work of trying to discover what was the author's intended meaning to his intended audience so we can appropriately apply it to our lives. But also in the introduction, John tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that word revelation is where we get our word apocalypse. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now maybe you've watched some apocalyptic movies or read some apocalyptic books, but it's talking about like the end of the world. And apocalyptic literature uh, was more common than just the book of Revelation. Very kind of odd imagery type of writing, but apocalyptic literature deals with what will take place at the end of history. That's what apocalyptic literature did. I'm going to deal with what will take place at the end of history. But in verse 3, he said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this what? Prophecy. Yeah, just looking for some participation. I see you. I want to hear you. Let's do this together. Uh, he's looking for, uh, he says, to follow or read aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's also a prophecy. Now, prophecy or prophetic literature deals with what will take place in the flow of history. Um, 
So you have a letter, and it's kind of laid out much like a lot of the epistles. You've got an introduction, an audience. It's, it's a letter to real people. But it's also apocalyptic, dealing with kind of end-of-the-world type events. And it's also prophetic, dealing with events that will lead up to the end of the world. And it's all kind of bottled together. And John makes it very clear that this letter is of divine authority. In fact, look at the three verses again. He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. He's like patting his own stats and his credibility. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, notice all the parties involved. God gives a revelation to Jesus Christ. God the Father gives a revelation to God the Son, who then tells his angel to tell John, and John is to tell the churches. So you got this kind of flow, God the Father to Jesus the Son, to angels, angels to John, John to the churches. And he's saying, hey, you better lean in. Like, you better take this seriously. This is directly from God. This is how I got it from an angel. Like, you better lean in and you better take this seriously. Um, and kind of calling people to do this. So you got this apocalyptic, uh, end of the world letter. It's prophetic that's going to deal with the events leading up to the end of the world letter from God, this divine authority to a persecuted group of Christians. So now we're back to our important question. Why? Why? What's the point? What's the purpose? Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. This is the only book in the Bible with a promise of blessing for reading and obeying its words. And the purpose behind this writing is to be a blessing. As confusing as some of it may be, as challenging as some of the stuff that we're going to look at, the main point behind it is to be a blessing. In fact, if you go keep going down to verse 4 uh, and 5, it says, Grace to you and peace from him. This is meant to give us grace and peace. This is meant to bring us peace. So somebody's like, ah, oh, it's the end of the world, like a, a scared thing. Do you see what's happening in our world and you're scared and you're frightened? No, this is supposed to bring us peace. Like this is good news to it. And you get down further, it says, To him who loves us. Here's what you can't forget as we work through this book. This is for our blessing, and it's written or given by somebody who loves you. It's full of good news, just glorious good news. And you might like, well, how exactly is this supposed to be a blessing to us? How, how does this help me? How does this bless me? If I'm a persecuted Christian under all kinds of conflict, how am I supposed to be blessed by this? Um, let, let's imagine that you were watching a movie with your young son or daughter. I'll give a gender neutral name so you can all relate. Let's say Johnny. Um, it's my daughter. So you're watching a movie with your young daughter, uh, who's five at the time, hypothetically, and mom is out of town. Uh, so dad decides to pick a movie that he wants to watch. Uh, and I pick, or somebody, hypothetically, picks uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. It's an epic tale. Like, who wouldn't? I mean, there's, there's, there's like a fairy queen in that. So, she, I mean, it's for girls, I'm sure. Five-year-old girls will love this. Uh, 
Well, as we're watching this movie, uh, and you have just the orc army and people's heads getting cut off, uh, you guys are looking at me like, what a bad dad. It's a great movie, okay? Uh, so you, you, this five-year-old girl, hypothetically, is watching this, and it's just getting to be too much. And, and there's a scene in the movie where the hero, Aragon, is in this battle, and he gets kind of drove off a cliff uh, to death. She's like, no, the hero can't die, dad. That's not right. And then the army of orcs kind of marches on the, the humans who are kind of trapped at Helm's Deep, this battle. And it looks like you are about to get wiped out. And she's like freaking out. Like this cannot be how this ends, dad. The hero cannot die. Like this is not right. And as a father, I just want to say like, watch the movie, right? Just watch the movie. Let it play out. But she's in so much like distraught and and stress and anxiety in this movie. I just pause it. And she comes sit on my lap. Sweetie, Aragon's not dead. In fact, he's going to come back. And he's going to come back at, at just the right time. And they're going to defeat the orc army. In fact, Gandalf shows up later with reinforcements. Like you look to the east and he's got this army that comes. They wipe them out. Right? And Sam and Frodo, they got separated from the party. They got some tough stuff ahead of them. It's going to get really bad for them. But they eventually destroy the ring. In fact, they, they, they throw it in Mount Doom. I hope I didn't ruin the movie for you if you haven't seen it. It's been out a while. Um, <laughs> But then they get picked up by eagles. Like they get a ride on eagles. And at the end, there's this like epic party on top of the castle. And King Aragon is reunited with his elf wife. It's a romantic. You'll love it. Like this is great. And it's like I just kind of tell her the story. And like, okay, do you want to finish the movie? It's like, yeah, yeah, I want to finish the movie. That's what this is. You have a group of persecuted Christians that are like, they killed Paul? And Peter and Timothy? Are you kidding? This cannot end this way. Wait, I'm going to get tied to a stake and lit on fire for believing in Jesus? This isn't right. Like, he's God of the universe. How could this happen? Like, and they're just so distraught. They just don't want to go on anymore. It's like, let, let me hit pause. Let me, let me tell you about the story you find yourself in. The words of this prophecy could be summed up as God wins. God wins. God rules even in our evil day. He does not forsake his people. He will triumph. Guys, this is a prophetic message with a very practical purpose. Like You can't lose sight of that. It's a prophetic message, as there might be some confusing stuff, but it's a prophetic message with a very practical purpose. And the, it was meant to encourage faithfulness in the face of persecution. This letter was meant to encourage faithfulness in the face of persecution. So God is like, hey, before you make that decision, like you, you want to quit? You got a group of people that are just feeling like compromising and cashing in and quitting and, and giving in. He's like, listen, before you make that decision, before you decide to turn this movie off, can I just tell you how it plays out? Because those people you think are winning that seem to be in charge that are throwing you in jail, let me tell you about their future. It's a lake of fire. For those people that stand with me and are faithful to the end, let me tell you about your future. It's glory and paradise. Let, let me tell you what's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to get worse. There's going to be some hard things that happen. But, but let me tell you about the, the coming King Jesus with reinforcements, leading a host of heavenly angels that's they say no chance against. So before you decide to shut this movie off, you want to hear how it plays out? 
And for us reading this now, for you to just feel like you're losing or you just are tempted to compromise and fit in with this broken world, he's saying, hey, can I just tell you how this plays out? Because those people you admire that the world think is so cool and you want to be like, do you want me to tell you what their end is? For those people that are faithful to King Jesus, can I tell you what their end is? So before you decide to compromise, can you want to hear how it plays out? And then he says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That word hear doesn't just mean like you audibly hear something. It means to heed it. Like you, you heed these words. You believe them. You, you embrace them. You take them seriously. And if you believe and embrace this, it will be for your good. It'll be a blessing to you. Like what he's saying, it's like it's going to strengthen you when you feel like quitting. When you feel like you're losing, it's going to remind you that you're on the winning team. When you feel like giving in, it's going to remind you who's really in charge. It's going to strengthen you. Here's what we need to remember if you're a note taker. God reveals his future victory for our present faithfulness. God reveals his future victory for our present faithfulness. This is the point or the why that we need to keep in mind throughout our study. We need to live with the end in mind. Like this is why we've been led in on it. We get led in on God's victory so that we stay faithful to him in the tough times and the hard times when it feels like we're losing. No, we know how this ends. And that we would be shaped by how it ends now. Because listen, guys, listen. If we are not being shaped by the future truth this prophecy lays out, then chances are you are being shaped by the present lies this world is telling you. Let me tell you that again. If you are not being shaped day in and day out now by the future victory of King Jesus, the chances are you are being shaped by the present lies that you think other people are really winning. It looks like they're getting ahead. It looks like they're the liked and favored ones. And you're going to want to fit in there. In fact, this reminds me of Psalm 73. I can read it to you. I think we'll have some of the verses on the screen, but... Psalm 73 starts out this way. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's what he's saying. I believe in God and I know he's good. But if I have a moment of honesty with you, when I look at kind of the wicked people of this world, I'm jealous. I want what they have. I want to fit in with them. I want to live like them. They seem to be having so much more fun than I'm having. Like I'm envious of them. They're they're favored in this world. It seems like they can do whatever they want. They're not under the law of God. Like they can just live their own life. And just in a moment of honesty, I just say, I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. I'm envious of them. I'm jealous. Like, oh, I want to fit in there. But then as you keep reading the psalm, you get to verse 16. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He's like, these people that I want to be like, this was hard. I had to wrestle with this. I almost slipped. But when I went into the sanctuary of God and I realized, hey, there's more to this world than what I see. There is a God. It's not just what's going on here. And I discerned how this all plays out. It's like, oh, I don't want to be you at all. 
I want to be far away from you. Like I know how you're in. I know what your end is. And I want nothing to do with that. I'm with God. But he said, I couldn't figure that out until I discerned their end. And this, this book of Revelation, this prophecy is the end. It's the end that's supposed to fuel our faithfulness. Like, hey, discern their end. You're not, you don't want to be like them. You don't want to compromise to give in to them. You don't want to fit in with them. Discern the end. And this is what happens in this book. So guys, as we go through this book, don't forget this. This is meant for our comfort and our courage. That's the point. So if you go through this and you have your charts and you think you figured everything out, but you're not finding comfort and courage to stay faithful to Jesus, you missed the point. The point is for our comfort and our courage is to comfort us by reminding us that the people that are wicked in this world that you think are winning, they don't win. And you are not alone. And you may feel like you're alone. You may feel like people hate you, but you are a child of God and God is victorious. And it gives us courage. Don't back down. Are you kidding? Christ is going to return on a horse with an angel army? Like Stand strong. Don't give in. In fact, guys, one of the things that I love about this book is that it can often seem like the expression of Christianity, particularly in America, is really feminine. I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, I do mean it in a bad way. But I'm saying there are some beautiful feminine qualities in the gospel that I don't want to downplay. But often when it comes to the methodology of churches, uh, American churches do a great job of reaching women and a bad job of reaching men. And a lot of the practices are, it's like, hey, let's get together and sing songs. But they're not like epic victory, chants of glorifying God. It's like Jesus is my boyfriend type of music, right? And if you want to be a disciple, if you want to get into discipleship, then you probably need to meet with coffee and talk about your feelings, right? That's kind of how church, and you guys are looking at me like, no, it's true. It happens, right? And here's statistics. The American church reaches a lot of women and they do a poor job of reaching men. And then you get to the book of Revelation, it's like slaying dragons. It's like going to war. It's like standing strong. It's like buck up. And you kind of get this call. And I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you men, if we would step up, like with some passion, like a Joshua moment, like, hey, hey, as for me and my house, this is what we're doing. Like we're with Jesus. And kind of this courage, like I don't care what the world's doing. I don't care that everybody watches that. We're not. I don't care everybody dresses like that. We don't. I don't care everybody talks like that. Not us. Like, we're different. Like, have some courage. Like, I don't care if we're against the flow. We're with Jesus. Like, if men would kind of take a stand, I'm telling you, our church would come alive in unique ways. But you got to lean into it. you got to be okay not fitting in. you got to have courage to be different. And, and listen, the impact that Christians have when they are faithful in the face of opposition and persecution is always stronger than when they're just faithful when everything's going fine. It's always stronger than when they're just faithful and everyone else around them is the same way. It's kind of blend in. In fact, Matthew 5, Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like, yeah, if you're getting persecuted, you're in good company. 
But there's this unfortunate section break. Like if you're looking at your Bible, it's kind of a paragraph break with a new title. I think that's unfortunate because the next thought's connected to this. He goes on to say this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying, when you're faithful in the face of persecution and people slander you and accuse you and mock you, that's what it means to be salt. That's what it means to be light. Those two thoughts go together. But if you look like everybody else, and you act like everybody else, and you talk like everybody else, and you watch what everybody else watches, and you just try to fit in, you're not salty. And what good is that? That's like having a a light that you proclaim Jesus Christ as your king, but let's just put a basket over it. Who does that? But Christ's point is like, no, 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 no. In the face of being persecuted, in the face of standing out and being different, in the, in the face of being mocked, that's what's going to make you salty. That's going to light up the world. That's what it means. So guys, you know that description earlier I gave you about the persecution these believers were facing in Rome? That they would be thrown to lions, thrown in jail, tied to a stake and lit on fire. Well, by the early 4th century, the number of Christians in Rome that confessed Jesus as Lord by the most conservative estimates is in the millions. millions. Some would say over 50% of the population by the early 4th century in Rome was Christian. How did that happen? How did that happen? Because when you're getting tied to a stake and lit on fire to light some guy's garden... Nobody's lining up to be a part of that party. So how did Christianity boom and thrive under under persecution? Crazy, strict, wild persecution. Because you would have a group of Christians courageously saying, I'll die for Jesus. Oh yeah, light it up. I know how it ends. You mock me. (laughs) I know how this story plays out. And they say, I will gladly die for King Jesus. And it's in that context Christianity thrived. Do you know that Christians in China multiplied from under 2 million believers to perhaps 30 times that number after or during four decades of intense persecution and torture and martyrdom of their leaders? How did that happen? Because you had a a group of Chinese Christians that are like, I'll go to jail for Jesus. (laughs) I'll die for Jesus. I'm not going to stop following Jesus. I don't care about fitting in here. You know, in Nepal, in 1960, there were just 25 baptized believers. But within 25 years, that number multiplied 1,000 times over during during a time when Christians faced a six-year prison sentence for baptizing others. How does that happen? Because you have Christians that are courageous. I don't care if you throw me in jail for six years for baptizing somebody else. 
You got drinking fountains in jail? I'll go Presbyterian. We'll start sprinkling people, right? You can't stop me. Like, I'm with King Jesus, and I know how the story ends. Kill me. I don't care. I'm, I'm in glory with Christ. And they had Christians who were courageous. Guys, hear me now. You need to hear this as Americans. The gospel does not need democracy. The gospel needs faithful, courageous Christians who are willing to stand for Jesus no matter what the culture is doing and face any consequence that comes their way. Persecution has always been a catalyst for the gospel to spread and thrive. So don't be afraid. Don't get bent all out of shape of what's happening to our world. You know how the story ends. Find comfort. Find courage. And some of us are worried that others might just think we're weird. I think we could use some courage. I think we could use some courage. And as we heed the words in this book about God's victory, about King Jesus' return, I pray that we find it as a church, that we would find it, that we would truly be blessed by our study of this revelation. We'd be blessed with comfort. We'd be blessed with courage. And let me tell you this as we go into communion, that we'd be a group of people that do not fear the second coming of Jesus, but are excited for it, anticipate it. And the reason we can be excited about the second coming of Jesus is because of the first coming of Jesus. When he came, not as a lion, but as a lamb, to be sacrificed for our sins where we could find complete forgiveness. So when he does come back as a conquering lion wielding a sword to bring judgment, we know that we are loved and accepted. And because of the sacrifice of Christ, we look at his return of saying, yes, please come, come quickly. I'm with him. And we're not afraid of anything this world throws our way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we do um, turn our attention to your body that was broken for us, that your blood that was shed for us, we would find tremendous comfort knowing that you are returning. You came as a lamb to give us a covering and forgiveness, and you're returning as a lion to bring judgment and to make all things new. And the people that we think are winning in this world... They will meet their maker. When you return, this broken world will meet its maker, its judge. And we will meet our savior, our leader, our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. We love Jesus. Amen.